It's great to be together uh, with everyone, uh, all guests, especially visitors. Uh, so great to have you here to worship with us this morning. Um, these are, these are such great days, this, this, of course, this day of Easter, but the season, uh, the, the couple of days preceding, super great days. So during Lent, uh, my homilies were all about this one word called kerygma. So kerygma is a Greek word that means proclamation. So uh, we acknowledged, or at least I, I suggested my observations as a priest, is that for most Christians today, so that's, that's people who, who come to church, people who don't come to church, people, whoever says that they, they claim to be a Christian, believing in Jesus Christ, for most Christians today, we don't know the full story of what God has done in the person of Jesus. For most of us, our understanding of Christianity begins with the birth of Jesus and it ends with his resurrection. We don't know the whole story and we don't know that Jesus actually enters into a story that's much bigger than his life. Uh, of course, he's the central figure of the story. Without him, there is no Christianity, but, but he enters into a story that's ongoing. Uh, and, and if you don't know the story, it's not gonna be all that powerful. So for most of us, when we hear about how Jesus has come to save us from our sins, for most of us, we just sort of think like, I'm not that bad a guy, you know? Like, I, I, don't, I don't know that I need to be saved from something. Uh, when in fact, the Bible is really clear that, that we do need to be saved. We do need to understand, right? I compared it to um, like D-Day. So D-Day, June 6th, 1944. For a person living in France in 1944, they knew very clearly that they needed someone to save them. So when the Allies landed at Normandy, this was like life-changing, transformational kind of news that, that it's just like, oh my gosh, these people came from thousands of miles away to save me from, from my miserable life? So for them, is, but, but then to, to imagine if there is no war going on in 1944, when the Allies land, it doesn't make sense. It looks silly, it looks foolish. So for most of us, we don't know the part of the story that comes before Jesus. So when we see his landing or talk about his landing, we just think, I don't really get it. But once you can understand the story, the hope is anyway, once you can understand the story, that it would actually be something that's life-changing and transformational for you. So we've been talking about the whole story uh, which has, the way that I present it, has four parts. The goodness of creation, sin and its consequences, God's response to sin, and our response to God. Talking about the goodness of creation, looking at the very beginning, what the Bible tells us about how God creates everything that exists, and looking at how everything that exists is so much bigger than we can really understand and comprehend. And God creates it all, and he does it freely and effortlessly, and he does it because he loves, because he simply wants to share life with his creatures. And out of everything that God makes, his favorite creature is you and me, made in his image and likeness. That God, when he creates the human person, he creates the human person uniquely as his favorite, the one that he loves the most. And there's a plan that he has for the human person, which is that he wants you to become like him. God creates us, the Bible, the, uh, the, the church calls it divinization. St. Peter talks about this, how, how he has called us to share his glory and his excellence, to become partakers of the divine nature. Like this is God's plan for you, nothing less than that, that you would become like him. This is, like, this is the, the goodness of, of what God does when he creates. The bad news, of course, is that we find out pretty quickly that we have an enemy, that there's one of God's creatures that hates that God's plan for the human person is so incredible. And so he goes to war against the human person, against humanity, coming to the man and the woman in the beginning, deceiving them, trying to convince them that they don't need God to tell them what is good and what is evil, 
They don't need God to tell them what is right and what is wrong, that they can figure it out for themselves, that they can find happiness apart from what God reveals as his commands. And so he does, in fact, deceive them, and they break the command that God gave to them. And when this happens, we call this the fall, when the fall takes place, it unleashes a whole series of chaos that enters into the world where a whole bunch of relationships are broken, where, where there's all kinds of division in the world, there's all kinds of doubt and clouded thinking, so that ultimately we're all left stuck in this place of not being sure who we can trust, including ourselves, and especially God. Not sure if we can really trust God, if we can really trust his word, for example, or, or his commands. Not sure if he's really good, if he's an enemy or a friend. And so this is the place, and ultimately we're, we're left stuck in this place of spiritual slavery, enslaved, where, where the devil begins to have a kind of domination over us. He rules over us, exerts himself over us, where we're stuck in the kingdom of death, death like with a capital D, sin with a capital S. We're stuck in this place. So we ask the question, how does God respond when his favorite creature rebels against him? What does he do? Well, we see actually not even like before we get to Jesus in the New Testament, we see that from the beginning in the Old Testament, God's response to sin is actually generosity. He provides from the beginning for his favorite creature so that his favorite creature can at least have a chance to maintain a good relationship with him. The problem is that his favorite creature, even though God provides in so many ways throughout, throughout history, his favorite creature continues to rebel against him, continues to insist on doing things his or her own way saying, I don't need God to tell me. I don't care what his commands are. I don't care what his word teaches. I can figure this out for myself. So we're stuck in this place. So ultimately, what does God do? He sends his son, his only son, the one whom he loves, Jesus, who dies for us. But before he dies for us, there's something revealed about him that, that he's, he's, he's given a unique title. It's called the Lamb of God which is made to, uh, it's meant to make us think back to Exodus chapter 12, when, when Moses and the uh, Israelites, right, they took the lamb and they slaughtered it and they ate its flesh and they put the blood on its doorpost, right? We know the story about how the angel of death passes over their houses and spares them from death. And from there, they're set free from their slavery in Egypt to cross through the Red Sea and into the promised land eventually. Jesus, who is the lamb of God, right, is meant, we're meant to do the same thing with him, to eat his flesh. Where do we do that? Of course, we do that here at the mass. At the Last Supper, Jesus, celebrating a Passover meal with his disciples, rather than giving the flesh of the lamb to eat, he takes the bread and he says, this is my body. He gives him his own flesh to eat. And we do this every Sunday, every day, as, as often as we can, offering the Mass. And we, we sprinkle his blood, the blood of the Lamb of God, on the doorposts of our souls. This is what happens when we're baptized. So that by sprinkling his blood and by eating his flesh, we can be set free from spiritual slavery. This is God's response to sin. And the best part about it is, is that Jesus isn't just this passive victim who's sent by the Father, but we find out in the Bible that, that he's actually in on the whole thing, that Jesus comes as, as like a king in disguise, trying to pick a fight with the one who holds us captive, going to war for us, which is what happens on the cross. The, the, the funny thing, right, we, look, we looked at this, how on the cross it seems like Jesus is weak and helpless, when in fact, this is his strongest moment because he dies and enters into Satan's kingdom of darkness. But Jesus is God, the light of the world. So from the darkness of the kingdom of darkness, he scatters it by his light and conquers that kingdom from within. And he emerges now from the empty tomb, victorious over sin and death. This ultimately is what we're celebrating today. Yes, Jesus died, but now he lives forever. 
when he does this, when he rises from the dead, what's revealed? Ultimately, what's revealed is that everything that he said, everything that he taught, everything that he did, it's true. He is, in fact, God himself who has come to save us and to set us free. My, my favorite thing uh, from, from uh, Acts chapter 2, or one of my favorite things, Peter is preaching this, this homily about how, how Jesus, you know, what God has done in the person of Jesus. And he says, this Jesus, you handed over to be crucified, he says. But let yourselves know, Jesus died, yes, but it was not possible for him to be held by death. Jesus is the God of the living, and so it is not possible for him to be held by the kingdom of death, and so he emerges victorious. In the book of Revelation, he reveals himself uh, to, to the, the author. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus' life that he lives now is a life that has no end, a life that has no weaknesses, a life that has no insecurities, no lack of confidence, but instead is filled only with the very power of God, for he is God himself. I mentioned this last week, but you have to let yourself imagine this. Imagine the scene where Jesus emerges from the tomb, the tomb that used to hold his dead body. And he knows the whole time what's going on. He emerges victorious over the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin. And he just says with a, a loud cry, right? Who is he who contends with me? Let him stand in opposition to me. Right? In other words, he's saying, look, I'm right here. Does anyone want to try to challenge me? Because you threw your best at me and I won in a rout. This is who Jesus is. It's what we celebrate today. But I want to I kind of ask this question, right? Like, okay, great. That, that all sounds great. Like, so what? What is the resurrection supposed to do for, for my life and for yours? Like, what, what meaning is that supposed to have in our lives? And, and if it is supposed to have meaning, then, then we can ask ourselves a question. Like, does it have that meaning for me? And St. Paul gives us a really good image, actually, in, in uh, the letter to the Colossians chapter 1. He says that God has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his own beloved son. We've been transferred. It's like we've been given a new family. Here's, here's the best image I've heard of to, to kind of describe this. So again, you have to let yourself imagine a little bit, right? So imagine growing up in a home that's incredibly dysfunctional, where like mom and dad are always arguing with each other, yelling at each other, whether it's at each other or maybe at you, right? They're always angry, always just looking to direct their wrath at somebody. There's abuse going on all over the place of various kinds. And you just hate being at home. So you do everything you can to avoid being at home. You join all the activities at school, all the sports, you try to get a job because everything that you do outside of home means that you get to spend less time at the place that you hate living because there's so much chaos and dysfunction and disorder. And then when you are home, you're tiptoeing around all the time because you know if you just make one wrong move, literally all hell could be unleashed on you. And you hate that. Your life is miserable, living in fear and insecurity constantly. And to make matters worse, you go, you go into your bedroom and you look across the street and across the street is this incredible family where the family is always sitting around their dining room table, like laughing, enjoying their meals together. The dad is always out in the yard playing with his kids, having a great time. And you just long for that. But you know, that's not your life. Your life is miserable and it's never going to get better. And then one day you hear a knock at the door and for some reason you're home alone and so you go and answer the door and it's the dad from across the street. And he just smiles at you and he's like, hey, do you want to come live with us? And you don't even pack. Right? Like that's what we're talking about. Transferred from the kingdom of darkness, of disorder, of dysfunction, of chaos, 
of fear, of insecurity, transferred from that family to the family where there's a good father who cares for his children, provides for them, and just simply loves being with them. Is that your experience of the fruits of the resurrection in your life? Do you know that to be the case? I think for a lot of Christians, we don't really know that to be the case. And it's not just that it's a good family. I mean, that's, that's amazing enough as it is. But, but uh, St. Paul also says that God made a public example of these, these demons, the, the Satan and his minions that tried, to, that tried to conquer him. God made a public example of them, right? It seems like all hope is lost when Jesus dies on the cross. But it's in this very moment when at Satan's, we could say like the peak of his arrogance. It's in this very moment that Jesus flips the tables and turns everything on its head and emerges victorious and it's not even close. He publicly humiliates the enemy, the one who holds us captive. So it's not just that I'm in a good family, but it's that my father is more powerful than anything that this world can throw at him. The king of this family is more powerful and who is unconquerable. Nobody can touch him. And so for me, as long as I live in this family, right, provided I live in this family and I don't stray back over here, as long as I live in this family, I don't have to fear anything. I don't have to fear death. I don't have to rebel against God. I don't have to sin. But instead, as long as I live in this family, I can submit myself to the authority of the good father, of the good king. You see, this is, like, this is the thing, you guys. Like The resurrection is supposed to unlock something for us. And that thing that is unlocked for us is eternity, helping us to see that this life is not all that there is, but that there's another life that is so much more incredible than this life, provided, provided we live in this family. I've used this image before, but I, th I think it's a helpful image to revisit, right? So we believe this, that, that when we're conceived in our mother's womb, our life on earth begins to, it begins. And then from there, we live our lives. We go, you know, through our childhood, through our adulthood, whatever, and then we die. But the thing is that we believe that even after we die, our existence goes on and on and on and on for eternity, right? It keeps going uh, and it doesn't stop. It just keeps going. Even if the rope will eventually end, eternity will never end. And we believe as Christians that as long as we believe in the Lord Jesus, following his ways and keeping his commandments, as long as we live as members of this family, we believe that the life that is to come it's, it's not worth comparing, St. Paul says. It's not worth comparing this life to the life that is to come because the life that is to come is so incredible that we can't even imagine how good it is. But if we refuse to live in this family, right? If we insist on doing things our own way, if we insist on, 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 refu on refusing God, right? If we insist on that, saying, I don't need him to tell me what is right and what is wrong. I don't need to tell the Bible to tell me what to do or what to not to do. As long as we live in this kingdom of darkness and dysfunction and disorder, then the Bible teaches us that this life, the life that is to come, the life that is so much longer than, than this little bit of life that we live on earth, that this life is miserable, far more miserable than we could possibly understand. And so for us to understand this, that, that as we celebrate the resurrection today, right before Jesus, before the resurrection, this being incredible wasn't possible. But now it is possible. And so now for us, right, everything that we do, everything that we do, we want to run and flock to live in this family. Because Jesus says that nobody comes to the Father except through him. And so for me, I have to come through him. I have to surrender myself to him. We'll talk more about this next week. 
But now I think just like to try to, to try to let yourself think differently because this is what the Bible, like this is what the resurrection is meant to do for us. It's meant to help us think differently. You know, we get so busy, caught up in this little part of our lives that we don't even think about this part of our lives. And so to think differently, to let your perspective shift and say, you know what? Sometimes I have to deny myself during this part. Sometimes I have to make sacrifices so that I can stay in this family. But what sacrifice wouldn't be worth it to share an eternity of incredible joy with God? And so how do I do this? Well, C.S. Lewis talks about how Jesus is this king who's landed in disguise. And he says that this king, Jesus, invites us into his great campaign of sabotage. To live in this campaign of sabotage, which means I'm always aware of where the enemy is trying to lure me over into his family. I'm always aware of this. And I'm subtly, maybe, or sometimes very confidently and boldly saying, no, I'm not going to live there. I'm going to live here. St. Paul talks about today in our second reading about how Christ, our Paschal Lamb, has been sacrificed. And so therefore, let us celebrate the festival. But our celebration as Christians should not look like the celebration going on in the rest of the world. Our celebration as Christians should look different because we're living for a different world. And so the primary thing that we want to do as Christians, as we live in this family, is we want to remove every bit of evil from our hearts, every bit of evil from the hearts of the people around us, to simply give Jesus permission, to say, Jesus, I give you permission to conquer everything. Especially for those of you who are able to receive Holy Communion today, when you come forward to receive communion and you go back to your pew and you're praying to just let Jesus, who comes to us in disguise, to let him have permission to conquer all of the evil in your hearts, all of the darkness, all of the chaos, all of the disorder and dysfunction. And then to pray for people who are stuck in this kingdom. And in the meantime, look at your life and ask the question, where do I need to repent? Where do I need to turn away from sinfulness? Where do I need to turn away from insisting on doing things my own way? Where do I need to turn away from rebelling against the good father and the good king? to turn away from those things and to come back into the family, calling specifically, calling on the name of Jesus for assistance because the Bible teaches us that it is his name that is above every name. It is his name that at his name that every knee shall bend. And so I call on his name and I ask him to remove those evil spirits from my life that are lingering, that are trying to lure me over into this kingdom. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the spirit of fear. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the spirit of rebellion. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the spirit of disobedience. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the spirit of lust. Whatever it is, renouncing those spirits that are constantly beckoning for me to leave the good family to come back across the street to my dysfunctional family. And that's going to include forgiving people. To let go of hatred. To let go of anger and pain. Resentment. In the name of Jesus, I forgive my dad for the time that he said this to me. In the name of Jesus, I forgive my mom for the way that she treated me this way. In the name of Jesus, I forgive father so-and-so for whatever he did. In the name of Jesus, I forgive president whoever or president whoever. In the name of Jesus, I forgive everyone who's caused harm in my life or anger in my life. I don't want to hold on to any of it because I don't have to live in this kingdom anymore. I don't have to let those things rule over me because now I am ruled over by a good king and a good father and I let them decide what I do. Right? This is, this is the kind of thing that we're talking about. This is the kind of thing that's going to let other people see that your joy as a Christian, a true Christian, is a different kind of joy. This is the kind of thing that's going to show people that you're living for a different world. 
simple question for you as, as we leave, right? What difference in your life does it make for you to be a Christian? Does it make a difference? If you weren't a Christian, how would your life be different other than you wouldn't be here right now? Because this is the thing, like the goal of all of this from Jesus's perspective is that this would make a world of difference. And if it doesn't, then you're missing something because he came for you to fight for you, to die for you, to rise for you, to conquer death and every evil spirit for you. But you have to let him.